1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
2: Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Job losses in Meta. 400 people are to go in Ireland as the company downsizes for the first time in its history. So is the government worried?
3: I do want to say that my thoughts are with the employees. Um, A very difficult time of year to get bad news, particularly at the run to Christmas.
2: So is Ireland too reliant on the tech sector? That would be the question in our online poll tonight. And also, the Republican red wave fails to materialize in the U.S. midterms. And some are pointing the finger at the former president, Donald Trump.
4: I think it sends a message to the country, along with some other states, that this is truly a pivot point for the Republican Party. Uh, This is a time that Donald Trump is, no doubt, in the rearview mirror.
2: Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. Well, it's been a bad week for the tech sector around the world and today it took another hit. Meta, the owners of Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp announced huge layoffs 11,000 people globally and with so many jobs in Ireland it has been caught up in the carnage up to 400 jobs are expected to go here. Here's what the League Leo Radker had to say a little earlier
3: So there'll be at least 30 days of information and consultation before anyone is laid off. Um, And there will be a redundancy package, an exit package for staff, uh, to make sure that they're given some financial security. Uh, And we as a government will make sure that they get the help they need to find uh, other employment. And there are lots of jobs in the tech sector. It's still a sector that's growing in the round. uh, And also any information they may need around social welfare entitlements or other opportunities, for example, around education or training uh, or setting up their own business. And a lot of people who've worked in tech firms in the past have gone on to set up their own business and do very well for themselves.
2: Well, our nightly live interactive poll is looking at this question tonight. Is Ireland too reliant on the tax take from the big tech sector? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote or follow the QR code you see on your screen. We'll bring you the poll results a little later in the programme. Well, let's get the global perspective first of all tonight on this announcement. News correspondent Ira Spitzer joins me from San Francisco. Uh, Ira, facebook meta mark zuckerberg you know they have issued statements today how have they tried to justify or explain these layoffs
5: well mark zuckerberg the meta ceo began the day with an all staff email to meta employees announcing the scale of these layoffs which as you just mentioned there are significant this amounts to about 13% of Meta's uh, global workforce who will be laid off. And uh, Zuckerberg apologized to the employees and attempted to take responsibility for this, saying uh, that his view and the view of others as at the beginning of the COVID pandemic when we saw This real shift towards uh, bringing yet more of our lives online, and that included online commerce. So uh, he said that he anticipated that this shift would be permanent, and uh, Meta began to plan their operations accordingly. However, uh, he said that his predictions did not turn out to be accurate, and that now, uh, you know, we've seen uh, Meta lose. Uh, have have revenue losses over the course of this year, significantly losing uh, about a quarter of their uh, stock value after their last earnings report. So uh, saying that he miscalculated the uh, revenue that he could expect and therefore uh, the next step here is these layoffs. So uh, those are expected to impact people around the world, including, of course, in Ireland, where uh, Meta employs about 3,000 people. So the understanding uh, from uh, media reports is that about 350 uh, jobs or so are likely to be lost there.
2: And Ira, Facebook, of course, is one of the big success stories in Silicon Valley. It's the first time in its history we've seen layoffs of this scale. What are they saying in Silicon Valley about this?
5: Well, this wasn't unexpected. Uh, this has been telegraphed for a couple of weeks now, but uh, there are still reverberations now from uh, what has happened. Facebook, of course, it's seemingly in the past, no matter what scandal uh, fell upon them, no matter uh, different changes to online commerce, they seem to always be able to grow and never, as you mentioned, had this period of mass layoffs. But uh, any tech company that is highly dependent on digital advertising Uh, has been adversely affected this year. We've seen both uh, the overall economic slowdown and issues such as uh, changes to Apple's privacy policies where uh, companies who used to depend on uh, Apple's tracking data to uh, better understand their customers, suddenly uh, iPhone users have the ability to opt out much more easily. So uh, Meta and others who are dependent on this advertising space Uh, Definitely facing some hard times and uh, not necessarily an end in sight, although it should be noted that uh, Meta's headcount had increased by about 30%. Mm over the past year or so, so uh, losing 13% of its global workforce uh, isn't necessarily uh, that massive of a shift given uh, the kind of growth we've seen from Meta over the years.
2: But is the sense, I'm wondering, Ira, that this is the end of it or that some of those other companies that are exposed to that type of revenue that you described there will also be impacted and therefore further job losses in the tech sector expected?
5: I think if the economic climate continues, we definitely could see uh, future job losses. These meta layoffs do do seem to be Uh, somewhat uh, at the end of a cycle here. We've seen uh, similar moves by uh, the companies Stripe and Lyft and, of course, Twitter now under Elon Musk. They immediately uh, cut about half of their workforce after he took over. So uh, there has been bloodletting here in Silicon Valley, which, of course, uh, ripples out around the world and and especially to Ireland with that uh, big tech industry there. So uh, I don't think we've necessarily seen the end of it, but uh, these of layoffs are, are the last of kind of the the big layoffs that at least have been uh, telegraphed so far this quarter
2: all right we'll leave it there iris Spitzer uh, in san francisco thanks for speaking to us this evening now let's go to our panel this evening i'm joined by john lee executive editor at the daily mail group ireland Finnegale td neil richmond people before profit td bridge smith and Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. You're all very welcome to the programme. Just to bring it back to Ireland, John, any update at all on the layoffs in Meta in Ireland, the types of jobs that are going to go, the type of package that's available, or indeed its long-term future in Ireland?
3: No new information as, as of this evening. I, I think we're, at the moment we're extrapolating uh, job losses here hmm. from their global um, projection. Of layoffs. Um, there have been soothing voices coming from Facebook uh, who, you know, having a great tradition of, of interacting with us traditional media. They send out their statements. There isn't, you know what I mean, backroom briefing as such to me anyway, um, of them complying with all employment law here, uh, adequate redundancy packages and, and adequate um, notice periods. Uh, so they've handled
2: it better than Twitter, it would appear.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, they've hired a lot of people and they're letting a lot of people go, but I suppose they've been dealing, as much as any company on the planet has been dealing with the fallout from an unprecedented 100-year pandemic. They clearly miscalculated the increase in online transactions that they they make a lot of their money from and are now having to redress that. Um, Micheál, Mar- I'm sorry, um, Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue addressed the matter this evening at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party uh, meeting. And they seemed to imply um, that they had some, uh, some, somewhat seen this coming. Uh, and that was their explanation they f- for not uh, using up a lot of the surplus that we've had in recent years, That the understanding of the fact that we're an open, fragile economy when it comes to these kind of things. And then somewhat politicised the matter, saying... That Sinn, you know, this is why Sinn Féin will call, cause problems in the in the future. That they won't be conservative and prudent like Fine Gael when it okay. comes to handling the the, company's, the country's finances.
2: A, a tough day, though, for all of those who work for Facebook, and a worrying day, I would imagine, for anybody who works in the tech sector in Ireland.
3: Absolutely, and and if we cast our minds back to the um, the grim days of the uh, of our economic crash, the the initial large, to my memory, the large. Job losses were in the tech sector. and I mean, Dell, um, letting up to a 1,000 people go in, in Limerick, Hewlett-Packard, other industries like that, went. They were the great success story of, of Ireland then and now. And I think there's a great psychological blow probably to, the, to many industries when they see this happening, because in some ways we, we, we might see the tech, the tech sector as the canary in the gold mine, and hopefully this isn't the trigger to substantial multi-sector job losses.
2: All right, Dan, I just want to go to the job losses within Meta again, because I was struck today, and I mentioned it there, that they added 28% to their workforce in the last 12 months alone. I mean, that's a substantial increase for any company what was their thinking back then? I mean, they talked about the pandemic, but we were pretty much coming out of the pandemic at that point, weren't yeah.
6: we? Well, I think what one of the things we talk about in economics is precautionary savings. So people will save money out of a precaution because they're fear for the future. I think what was going on in the tech sector was precautionary hiring. Unemployment was so low, they were growing so fast because the pandemic had upped the sort of trajectory of growth for tech companies, that they were worried they wouldn't be able to get people and have the people to expand their business. So I think many of the leaders of these tech companies have said that they got it wrong, they they overhired. And now what we're seeing is retrenchment on top of things like falling stock market valuations for these companies, the risk of a global recession. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty out there uh, in in that sector in particular, but also much more widely.
2: But you don't feel that this is sort of the tech bubble bursting, do you?
6: Well, I, I would think if we look ahead... Will we live more of our lives and do more of our spending online as a, as a society, as an economy? I think we will. So I think this is a structural growth industry. It's not like, you know, the textile industry or the, the manufacturing industry for laptops that, that declined structurally. This is a growth industry. And let's remember, Ireland is the biggest exporter of tech services in the world we sell more tech services abroad than even the Americans do where a lot of these companies are based. So Ireland has become a real hub in the world for tech services. And I think it's good to be in a growth industry, not one that's in structural decline. I certainly don't think the tech sector is in structural decline.
2: But I suppose one of the big fears, the big fears I'd imagine for people watching at home tonight is, look, we've had this really uncertain period now. We have rising interest rates. We have huge inflation like we haven't seen in 40 years. We haven't had job losses to to date? Is this the beginning of a shift? Is this, as you say, the canary in the coal mine? I
6: I think we could go six months from now, we could be in a situation where we're in a deep recession in Ireland, Europe, globally. Six months from now, we could be looking at falling inflation, interest rates not going up as much as we thought, and still, as we have now, incredibly low unemployment. I can see a plausible path to both of those outcomes. So I don't think I've ever been more uncertain about things, <laughs> that things could go in two very different directions. And my hunch, maybe I'm you know, a opt- just a natural optimist, my hunch is, particularly for Ireland, the resilience this economy has shown and the sectors it's in, mm. that I would lean slightly more towards the optimistic one. But look, there are, as you said, with so many uncertainties out there, we could easily be in a recession six months from now.
2: Alright, Neil Richmond, given the fact that we could be in a recession, given the fact there's so much uncertainty right now, is the government expecting, as they seem to be indicating, they were expecting these job losses? Are they expecting further job losses? Are they on standby for further job losses within the tech sector?
1: Well, I think we have to put these job losses are extremely disappointing, particularly for those people who it will affect when they find out. And that's the first mm-hmm. concern. But we also have to put it in the context that we have seen continued increased um, job growth in the tech sector and the wider economy throughout this calendar year. We've seen 110 different investments won by the Irish government and the state agencies creating up to 18,000 jobs. So let's put that in the context. And you but, feel yes, those
2: jobs, given what Mark Zuckerberg said and the you know recruitment he did in the last year, which he now says was a bad idea, you think those jobs are safe?
1: Absolutely, a lot of them are because they're in diversity. Like tech isn't just one monolith represented by meta or indeed by social media companies. There is a wide area to tech that we could spend um, hours going through, but we also see jobs growth beyond that in engineering, in pharmaceutical, in medical devices. Through the deepest days of the pandemic, Ireland still increased its level of exports whilst most other economies in the Eurozone didn't. The so you don't course, or you is, do
2: expect further job losses in the tech sector?
1: Well indicators say that there will be an element of job losses but you have to again put that in the context that there has been job increases and the economy as a whole is both growing, we are at effective full employment. If we compare as um, John referenced, you know, the, the horrible days when, when Intel and Dell let go a huge amount of employees. That was into a far more uncertain time and an economy that simply wasn't as strong as, well as we have at the moment. And an economy where there has been €2 billion Euro put into a rainy day fund. And I'm not going to politicise it, but prudent measures have been taken, aware that we're facing into a global economic climate, the war in Ukraine, energy prices and so much else that will throw risk factors at a small open economy like ours, of course.
2: All right, uh, Bridge, your reaction to these? job losses, well, potential um, job losses. Yeah,
7: obviously the first thing is my solidarity and sympathy to those who are losing their jobs and m- most of them would be very highly educated, very well trained and would have felt they're in a secure industry mm-hmm. because of the open, ever onwards and upwards nature of it.
2: And the ton um, to there are sounding very hopeful in, in that clip we played at the top of the programme that they're highly skilled people in demand elsewhere, other jobs for them in the tech sector, lots of support for them if they want to open their own business he seemed to be painting a very positive pictures for these workers.
7: Yeah, but on, there's another element to this that i just like to throw out there, and that is the, the notion that you've got so much wealth and power in the hands of so few men that the likes of Zuckerberg can borrow, you know, 10 billion or spend 10 billion on a metaverse project, which seems to be failing. Nobody seems to be buying it. It's very expensive. Um, and uh, um, Elon Musk borrows 44 billion. To buy Twitter. This is huge amounts of money and we don't know if that isn't the decisions that they're making, bad decisions, bad planning, bad decisions that are leading to this rather than just a, 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 an automatic downturn in the, in the tech industry. And is that one of the it, perhaps difficulties it is, here? Perhaps it's a downturn in the whole world economy. I'm sitting beh- beside one of the greatest economists in the country so we think and he can't tell us whether we're facing recession or not facing a recession. I certainly can't. But then what I do know is that there's something drastically wrong, like I said at the beginning, with so much wealth in the hands of so few men. Yeah,
2: and is that a difficulty with these jobs, Neil? Right, great jobs when they're here, very well-paid jobs, great benefits. But we have no real control over them. The government has no control over them. The jobs are decided and the strategies for these companies are decided over in, in California. Are we at the whim of a couple of billionaires who decide you know in the morning how they're feeling in some cases?
1: Well I think what we're very lucky to have is consistent government ministers over the last decade who it's not simply controlled at a whim. Uh, our government ministers are very experienced in visiting Silicon Valley. They won serious investment into this country created an amazing jobs not just for Irish people but people from across um, Europe and wider to come and make their home in Ireland, earn a good living, create further jobs in the economy create tax revenue, spend money. We have an opportunity that Ireland is known as a tech centre, a pharmaceutical sector, an aviation sector. There is,
2: yeah, There is a difficulty though too, isn't there, Neil? Uh, and it's worth remembering that there are other people who feed into these tech jobs and I'm wondering how protected their jobs are. Is it inevitable that those who provide catering perhaps to these companies or security to these companies, that there's a knock-on impact there? They're not directly employed by these tech uh, companies so we don't hear them included in the job losses, but But it's inevitable that they'll be impacted? One thing Meta
1: have actually said to their credit is that those who are on contract to provide those catering Mm -hmm. cleaning services won't be affected by this announcement. This is for core employees. But obviously, just as much as jobs creation, again, I go back to the central point. This is a really worrying day. Indeed, my solidarity and sympathy goes out to the workers primarily first. But it is in the context of a growing economy and job creation constant that has been extremely strong just in this year alone.
2: Okay. so one side of this, of course, is jobs. The other side is the potential impact on our corporation tax and our nightly interactive poll this evening. The question was, are we too reliant on the tax take from the big tech sector? The result of that poll was that 76% of you, over three quarters of people watching this evening, agree, 24% disagree. Neil, our our viewers think we're over-reliant on the tax take that comes from these big companies.
1: Yeah, and that's, it's, is it the big tech companies or is it the multinational industries as at home? Because it's not just tech that mm. comes to invest in Ireland, and these provide really good jobs. And this is one of our big selling points. We don't have a mass level of natural resources. We don't produce coal or natural resources like the big industrial economies. We didn't have that industrial level. But we do create good jobs that big international firms want to come in. But crucially, that we do have indigenous firms being created out of that as well.
2: I'm going to put that to you, Dan. How much of the corporation tax tick comes from big tech?
1: Well,
6: we're now taking in 20 billion. It's risen fivefold in 10 years. A lot of that has got to be from the tech sector. But just in terms of how we've become reliant, we've allowed ourselves to become reliant. Only recently has the government started salting away mm. some of that huge increase in corporation tax revenues. In my view, and I've been banging on about this for years, that over, say, 10 billion, the government should have treated that as a windfall not as repeated money that's always going to come and, and use how, that to pay off debt.
2: For how long have we been in receipt of figures in excess of 10 billion? How much money has. Where, where has that money gone, I suppose?
6: So it was 4 billion about 10 years ago and it's been going up, up, up. So it must have been about seven years ago since we broke through the 10 billion barrier and it's gone up and up to over 20 billion. And government has treated that money as though it is a permanent increase and has used it to spend in most years. In, mm. for most of that money, in my view, that means we've allowed ourselves to become dependent on it, which was, in my view, not the most prudent thing that should have been done.
2: Um, has it been spent well? Because I did hear the Tonish speaking last night and he said, you know, a lot of this money went on one-off measures, went on capital events investment, you know, it's not being used in the everyday um, spending that they'll have to return to year in, year out.
6: No, like, look, that if that you case? look at the wider spending plot, yeah. there's no doubt that a huge amount of money has been invested in infrastructure. The government's capital budget has grown a lot, but it its day-to-day spending, which makes up much more than its capital spending, has also grown a lot. So as I say, as I come back to the point, I think the government has allowed itself to become excessively dependent on this money.
7: Reach, does that concern you? Well, uh, do you know what's extraordinary? Not so long ago, the Commission on Taxation released a report where they recommended, this was a commission that the government themselves appointed, and they recommended that they widen the tax base and begin to tax wealth in a much more extensive way than we do, we barely tax wealth in this country at all. Um, and there was uproar over the report. I think some of the Fine Gael, uh, ministers were saying they're talking like shinners and Marxists. And, where, you know, and this was people they commissioned themselves uh, to do this report. So there's an extraordinary contradiction between what they say to us all the time, when we protest, for example, that there's too much of our national grid being sucked up by the very multinationals who are letting workers go now, uh, and they say, we absolutely have to rely on them. They bring jobs and all the rest of it. They pay the lowest tax rates, but they bring jobs and, and corporation taxes going up. And then when their own commission says, you need to broaden the tax band, they reject them as shinners okay. and Marxists.
2: Neil, I wanted to let you react to that. Two things there. First of all, Dan O'Brien saying we are over-reliant and we have been for a long time. And Breach saying what we needed to do was widen our tax base. We weren't relying on those um, corporation tax receipts and we haven't done that either.
1: Well, firstly, I think that the measures the government have taken to uh, address that, and if you look at the corporation tax this year and the way it was present, spent on one-off measures and then into the rainy fund, is a, a welcome adjustment to that. Bear in mind that... Tax but that you've been that a
2: little late to do that, and now those corporation tax receipts I know, I are going an, to turn they're on probably to, a downward trend. We had an opportunity it. over the last couple of years, maybe we didn't use it properly.
1: And if you look at where the economy was in 2012, as we were coming out of... Um, the great financial setback of that time but in terms of the tax commission and widening the tax base this government in the previous one has widened the tax base indeed the, the clearest uh, tax selling a little or a lot Some wealth is the local property tax, which Breed opposes, and her party has consistently opposed uh, its introduction and its increases at local authority level, where they have the say. But you do also have. But is that not uh, money that's just ring?
2: fenced for local authorities, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, but it's a
1: tax on wealth that allows local authorities then to pay for the services. That's a key thing that goes into it. But we also, as I said, we've seen other taxes in terms of carbon taxes and other things. That's being really fenced is, for
7: climate action. Yeah, yeah, and
1: this is broadening the tax base and using it for ring-fence measures that are crucially important. But you, you don't ta- you on. don't
7: tax wealth. I mean, there's a huge amount, and it, that commission showed it. Oxfam, um, the, the Social Justice okay. Ireland, has shown that if you taxed wealth properly, you could bring in billions into this country. And I'm talking about taxing all of the multimillionaires we have and we have grown the amount of millionaires we have. We have grown much, much more wealthy among a tiny cohort, but we don't tax that well. But as racially as an entire society,
1: we've grown more wealthy as well, and standards of living are higher, and incomes, uh, are, real incomes are higher as well. Though. Yeah, but we're not growing oh, okay, our I tax want to bring,
2: base on, on the basis of I want of to wealth. bring Dan back in here. Dan, what's going to happen to those corporation tax receipts, given what we're seeing now in the tech sector?
6: I think there's a good chance that this period the tech sector is going through will lead to lower profits and that will lead to lower revenues. Mm. And we also have lots of other, other risks out there like everything else. You know, other companies, if we have a global recession that will affect all companies. Uh, we've got the issue of global tax reform stalled at the moment, but again if that goes the wrong way for Ireland, that will lead to a structural big step down in our, our corporation tax revenues. So plenty of risks out there to keep people awake at night, I suppose, if you if you don't sleep well and worry about the economy.
2: Okay, just very, very briefly, John, I wanted to ask you about this- Suggestion today that there would be sort of a two-tier welfare system. Um, tell me a bit more about that. Is that a runner, do you think, for this government? Well,
3: they seem to they seem to base this upon the, the success they felt the government felt came out of the graduated payments to people who were made unemployment unemployed during the pandemic. So this that that, that was a guide. They are now taking to institute this in the new year, whether it's a success or not, but it's certainly going to be a success or not, I don't know, but it certainly is a runner. Could I just say that most European countries, particularly the Nordic countries, that's exactly what
6: they've always done. When you lose your job, you get a big chunk of your income and then it tapers off over time. Ireland, we have this very crude system that everyone just gets the same amount of money, open-ended. It's a much better, to move in that direction, in my view, would be a much better way to go.
2: I would say Breed, might disagree on that, but unfortunately we've run out of time. I don't actually, we
7: used to have that system. Um, where okay. you were paid, your, your, your unemployment was paid according to the relationship to your wages. Um, and I don't actually disagree with it as long as it's not used to lower the floor. And indeed, that there must be a recognition that people who are on the basic social welfare payment are not paid enough. They're in the poverty trap. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Breach Smith and to Dan O'Brien.
2: John and Neil are going to be staying with me as we cast our eye across the Atlantic. It wasn't a great night for the Republicans, despite the polling and Donald Trump in the midterms. The United States now and usually midterm elections are a chastening experience for a new president. Barack Obama lost 60 House seats back in 2010 and Donald Trump lost over 40 seats four years ago. But the Democrats and Joe Biden seem to have booked that trend with the race for the House and the Senate too close to call after a night of drama. Well, let's go to Washington, D.C., where Richard Chambers joins me live. Richard, this is going to go down to the wire, it seems. Bring us up to date. Where are we at
4: look here at this point it does seem that the republicans are going to take the house of representatives but not with the sort of sweeping gains that you would have expected even this time yesterday Uh, you had the house uh, speaker or the uh, house uh, minority leader kevin mccarthy was hoping to become the majority leader as early as today that hasn't happened Uh, but really uh, the senate is really the big prize on offer at this point and that does hang in the balance three more races outstanding there nevada arizona and georgia which now goes to a runoff in a few weeks time which could Could effectively be the all important seat deciding uh, who in fact controls the Senate. For Donald Trump, though, a repudiation in many ways uh, last night. A lot of the candidates he backed and personally hand picked to run for the Senate, to run for Congress, and to run for crucial uh, governorships across the country, they got knocked back badly last night. He isn't going gently into that good night though however he is saying uh, that it was a good night for him he has no plans we understand uh, to back down from his announcement for his presidential run for 2024 which is coming next week even as uh, the Republican Party the GOP is already scratching its head and wondering how it tackles the Trump problem already they're looking for their next saviour in Ron DeSantis the Murdoch press uh, as well as Fox News already anointing him in many ways uh, as the future of the party so it's going to be interesting how the rivalry between uh, Trump and DeSantis plays out that's one story to watch here in the U.S. over the next period of time.
2: Yeah, and something we're going to be talking about in great detail in the next part of the programme. Uh, Joe Biden, the President, he will be happy enough, I would have thought, with this result. He's spoken in the last hour. What did he have to say?
4: It was something that was a Im- Sort of a delicate balance between a magnanimous accepting that America is quite divided, that people aren't happy with the direction of the country and the economy in particular in the US, and a bit of a, and I told you so, a, a really a, a, a sort of a, this thing, the plan that I have set on in train uh, is working and Americans are coming with that. If Americans are angry, they aren't making rash decisions was kind of the message that Joe Biden was giving in the White House just a short time ago. Here's a little bit of what he had to say.
3: While we don't know all the results yet, at least I don't know them all yet, uh, here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. And I know you were somewhat miffed by my, uh, my uh, obsessive optimism, but uh, I felt good during the whole process. I thought we were going to do fine. While any seat lost is painful, Some good Democrats didn't win the last night. Democrats had a
0: strong night.
4: Yeah, so Joe Biden effectively saying that this was a good night, uh, effectively a bit of a victory dance in many ways from members of his team uh, who are uh, very gleefully sharing an old clip from 2020 when he was written off for the presidency of him telling the New York Times editorial board that he's not dead and he's not going to die. Uh, he's also said that he is intending to run for 2024, but he will make more of a decision on that, a firmer decision over the holiday period here in the US. So uh, Joe Biden very much clinging on, saying that uh, despite the challenges that America does face in terms of the economy. He does have an agenda he wants to get through and he could see it through to the very end.
2: All right, Richard Chambers in Washington. Thanks for that update. We're going to leave that there for now, but lots more after this break as we discuss the fallout from the midterms and what it means for one former president in particular.
8: Well, I think if they win, I should get all the credit and if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, Okay. (목소리도) 안녕하십니까
2: 안녕하십니까 <목소리도> Well, let's take a closer look at the fallout from the US midterm elections. I'm joined once again by John Lee and Neil Richmond. And I'm also joined this evening by Catherine Sands, legal correspondent at The Business Post and Graham Finley, politics lecturer at UCD. You're both very welcome to the programme and thanks for joining us. Um, I just want to remind viewers again of what Donald Trump had to say on Tuesday night, the night um, before we got these results. He gave a raft of interviews to media This is one of his comments.
0: You've endorsed more than 330 candidates this election cycle. Uh, Tonight, win or lose, the results for Republicans, um, how much of that will be because of Donald Trump?
5: Well, I think if they win,
8: I should get all the credit, and if they lose, I should not be blamed at all, okay? But it'll probably be just the opposite.
2: It really is quite something, Neil. I'm thinking that's an election slogan for you next time round. But Catherine, this is a man who felt very confident, clearly, going into these elections. How is he feeling
0: now, would you imagine? I'd say he's feeling pretty angry. I think there were some reports today that he was livid um, and shouting at his staff. um, And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, feeling like maybe some of the people that he backed didn't play out the way that he thought he was going to. I think a really interesting uh, rivalry that's already starting to happen is between him and Ron DeSantis, uh, who is the governor of Florida, who won a decisive victory in the midterms this time. Uh, Trump actually was giving comments about DeSantis on Monday and said, uh, I can say a lot of bad things about him, or I know a lot of things that could make his life difficult, kind of laying the stage for this rivalry between them. So he's clearly feeling threatened by this in, you know, person coming to uh, potentially take his place in the party. No, he didn't say what
2: information he had had on him but he just he basically threatened him you run up against me and I'm going to take you to the cleaners
0: yeah essentially yeah I mean it's classic Trump behavior but who knows you know how DeSantis is going to feel about this I think he's probably feeling pretty good he didn't mention Trump once in his acceptance speech so that should say something as well and we see the New York Post
2: I think we have their front page really endorsing him as the future the future of the uh, Republican Party who is this guy?
0: Uh, Ron DeSantis is a Floridian. He's uh, got Italian parents from Jacksonville. Uh, He is kind of was touted as a baby Trump for a long time. You know, he was seen as kind of a Trump protege. Now he's kind of like broken away and uh, he's hugely popular in Florida. I mean, his victory alone was decisive, but his approval rating I think is something like 64%. Um, That doesn't, you know, he has weathered quite a few scandals. Uh, He was criticized heavily for his um, treatment during the COVID pandemic, for the deaths that happened there. He also just as recently two months ago weathered a huge scandal where he was essentially accused of uh, trafficking migrants from Texas to Massachusetts. So there's, you know, he's hugely it's divisive figure. It's not that he doesn't figured. have no. skeletons yeah. in his
2: closet. Definitely not. But he's not like Trump in personality.
0: Mm, I would say he is quite like him in personality. Maybe a little bit more tempered, but... <laughs> oh, I just don't
2: know if I can do this again, Graham. I going to come to you because I think the feeling was today that more moderate Republicans seem to be winning out in these midterms, as opposed to these more extreme characters, perhaps, that were Trump-backed. Do you think this spells the end of the cult of Donald Trump?
8: I think the cult of Donald Trump is going to be really hard to end. The Republican Party went straight back to him after his supporters ransacked and attacked the Capitol... Within days, Kevin McCarthy, the future majority leader, it looks like, was going down to Mar-a-Lago to apologize to Donald Trump and swear fealty to him, despite having just been had his life at risk from, from, from invaders into the U.S. Capitol. So it's, he's not going to go that that quietly, and he's built up a huge following within the Republican Party. So, sure, moderate Republicans were elected, but moderate by the standards of the contemporary Republican Party, from whom... Proper moderates have been driven for decades at this point. I mean, a lot of really moderate Republicans who would work with Democrats left during the Tea Party movement or were driven out, were deselected. And Trump has put a lot of the the candidates in their place this time. So so do you think, is there
2: a confusion within the Republican Party then? Do they go for Ron DeSantis or do they let Donald Trump run again? Or will there be kind of a split within the party? I
8: I think there's a split, but it's just because of the premium Trump puts on loyalty you know, and so you can't be loyal to both DeSantis and Trump, but you can subscribe to their ideas pretty broadly. The Republican Party doesn't really have policies much anymore. They didn't have a platform when Trump ran ran in twenty twenty. The platform was whatever Trump wants to do. Uh, they they mostly are engaged with sort of culture wars and and. Showboating And DeSantis is really good at this, um, and he's made that the basis of his rule in Florida. I, you can't associate a lot of actual positive political activity or po- active policies to address the cost of living crisis, all the things which Floridians are facing, like everybody else, with DeSantis. And you especially can't identify with Trump beyond just owning the libs, right? That's the whole platform.
2: But Donald Trump has signaled, hasn't he, sort of in the last week? He's given all of these interviews, as I said. He's had numerous rallies. He's promised this announcement on Tuesday, which everybody assumes is going to be, I'm going to run again MAGA 2.0, whatever it is. Do you think he will?
8: I think he will. Uh, you know, he, there's lots of people saying they're going to sit him down after this and say, you know, Donald, you might lose. And uh, But he, he loves the rallies. He just likes being a, a politician. He or at least his particular kind of politician, he still thinks he can win everything he tries, even though he's failed at so many things he's tried. Uh, And he hopes that if he can become president again, it'll keep him out of jail because he's got so many potential indictments, so many charges, so many serious crimes, which both he and the Trump organization could be charged with that, uh, you know, like so many world leaders these days, he, he thinks that, you know, the only way to, to avoid jail is is to is to succeed and get back into office.
2: And you think he could, still?
8: I'm never going to count Donald Trump out. Um, you know, I, I was burned too badly the last time. <laughs> but uh, again, you know, we're seeing that the polls just aren't really good at picking up what's going on in the street. And so no, they were the, way
2: off here, weren't the, they? They were 10? way off. You
8: know, the the you know the general congressional ballot. You know, whether you're going to vote Democratic or Republican for the for the House, say turned fairly strongly towards the Republicans in the last three or four weeks. But, you know, nobody votes for a generic congressional ballot, right? They vote for the, the person in front of them. They vote in individual races. And we're seeing in all these individual races that uh, that things have been very, very different. But there are some trends which should worry Donald Trump and should worry the Republicans, which which I, I think will come out a little more clearly in the coming days.
2: What does this mean, do you think, John, for Joe Biden? Because if the votes was meant to be in the economy, you think he would have been trounced because it's not in a good place at the moment. Plus, the sort of assumption is that the midterms is a bit of a trouncing for the incumbent president. He'll have come out OK. He'll have come out quite well, actually.
3: Well, you know, when you see him on TV, you would be concerned. He he he, he does appear to be ageing before our eyes. So, mm. you know, it's whether he runs again. He doesn't seem a very strong candidate. I think he's, he's polling at uh, around 42%. But... Traditionally, the midterms haven't been a a great indicator of how a general election will go, a presidential election will go. But then again, on the other side of that, Trump seems to book every trend. I think for Biden, we'll see. uh, I saw some pundits saying this evening they don't think either man is going to be president next time out, whatever that means. Geopolitically, there is a hope, and you know, we're not. I'm not. um, I'm not a voter in the United States, so. But geopolitically, there would be a hope that this erratic man does not return to the, the White House, that he, just, he, he he could destabilize world affairs at a very, very fragile moment. But these, all, they, these results also offer some hope, I think, to those of us who, who would think there's some kind of check to the, the populist flow on the planet. Yeah. Uh, we've seen the downfall of Johnson in Britain who was, who was a similar embarrassment mm. to all of us. Um, who admire right-thinking politicians being in place. We have the boring Rishi Sunak there. and um, We've seen the, the departure of Corbyn in Britain and been replaced by a, a, a decent, boring politician. Um, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil also very marginally lost. So I think a lot of people hope that, that some sense returns to the United States. But I, I also haven't been one of those who've thought historically that this... Trump era, and I could be wrong, has been a huge outlier. I mean, I would have thought, looking at the history of the United States, it's always been a, a rather um, a country that's fluctuated a lot and it is, is now under Trump, should he return, and some of the behaviour we've seen while he was there, worse than the 1960s when, when, when presidents were being shot in the streets. So I, I'm never one of those who got hugely excited or, too, or hugely fearful of Trump but if it's an indicator that he won't be back in the White House, I think a lot of the world's leaders would breathe a sigh of relief. You think
2: that's a positive thing. Picking up on just one of the points that you made there about you know, these sort of erratic um, politicians which have been endorsed by the public in a number of uh, countries around the world, there seemed to be a real you know, rebellion, wasn't there, against sort of these... Career politicians, Neil Richmond, these sort of solid politicians, you know, no cult of celebrity around them. You know, we weren't maybe infatuated by their personalities.
3: About Neil now,
2: Absolutely <laughs> not. Do, is that over, this sort of rebellion against the status quo? Do you think that's the end of it? Because we don't think Trump is going to get reelected. We've seen Johnson go. You mentioned Bolsonaro. Is there a shift now back to, you know what, state, solid? There's nothing wrong with that.
1: Well, as a career politician, I would certainly (laughs) hope so. (laughs) And Uh, are you breathing a sigh of relief? (laughs) In In one degree, yes, because unfortunately for every Johnson and Trump and Bolsonaro and Le Pen that have failed... Sadly, if we look at Europe, there is still an element of the extremes coming in. We see the new Italian government uh, reaching back to the very dark fascist past. We see the Swedish Democrats coming into government um, on a very hard right agenda. And we still see the populist left very active in parts of the Mediterranean. So it's definitely not gone away yet. Um, And I think there's always a danger in all political systems where we believe in an open free democracy, that there is a tend towards populism and there is a tend towards the the big state, the big man, um, be a dictator or a strong man leadership. So I think we always have a duty and responsibility, particularly as practicing politicians, as journalists and academics, to warn against that mm. and be careful in our language. Not everyone who we disagree with is a populist. Not everyone who we disagree with is hard left or hard right. We, myself and Breed, are relatively mainstream politicians who can disagree, Breed who was sitting there earlier, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that you're Breed. <laughs> uh, we could disagree immensely but we can still work together on key projects where we need it. Sadly, we've seen that depart from American politics. We've seen it depart not just from British politics, but within the Conservative Party over the last five years, we've seen Conservative MPs blocking each other on social media and having rise in bars. We can't let our politics get like that.
2: Yeah, and I'm thinking back to the warnings of Joe Biden prior to this election, that democracy was at stake was it was it that serious, Catherine? And has that fear now been dispelled,
0: given the results that we're seeing? I think it's fair to say democracy is at stake in every election. Um, I don't think the fears have definitely been uh, distilled at all. I think. But I suppose
2: there's... this was very particular because there were candidates running who were saying, "We're going to fix the next election to make sure Donald Trump." wins or we don't believe the last election was fair and correct.
0: Yeah, and those it was people... It more extreme, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think some of those people will get elected. Some of the election deniers will be in positions of power, including positions like Secretary of State, where they are actually overseeing the 2024 elections which is a terrifying prospect but aside from that I, I still think every election that goes by there's another layer of like hurt and and edginess that gets like landed on people because they go through these campaigns that are so divisive the ads on television the literature that they get it's just mocking minorities mocking people of color and lgbt people and i think one party versus the other just trying to get cheap shots and you mentioned owning the libs i mean i think it just keeps getting baser and baser and i think that's something that is going to continue to be a problem
2: You mentioned sort of culture wars, Graham, and it's a phrase I think we hear a lot. What does that actually mean?
8: That's a really good question. I mean, the, the people who are waging them would say that this is really, really fundamental stuff for our society and, you know, which needs to be preserved or conserved or bolstered or... But the war part of it, I think it usually involves confecting some threat which doesn't really exist. Then convincing people that it's real and that they should sacrifice all sorts of things like local control over education or teachers deciding how they should teach or um, private businesses wanting to do things a particular way, wanting to offer certain kinds of training to their employees, and, and that's where we come from with the critical race theory bogey person, the you know gender theory bogey person, you know the the idea that diversity training or you know is in fact racist you know all of these culture wars have been stirred up because they can't win and they don't have policies on on fundamentals like the economy and so forth so it's very convenient for ginning up your base and it works better in some some elections rather than others i think one of the interesting things about this election is that it didn't really work in a, in a lot of contexts it didn't get a lot of quite extreme candidates over the line now in arizona the Carrie Lake, who's running for governor, Mark Fincham, who's running for uh, secretary of state. It's very, very close. And both of them are a combination of election denialism and, and culture war. But DeSantis's entire persona is based around culture war and turning, you know, pandemic response into a culture war by basically denying, um, you know, any kind of local entity the chance to let you know require people to wear masks or something as basic as that
2: all right so the culture war if he gets selected will continue it would seem all right look we're gonna to have to leave it there that's it from us this evening my thanks to all of my guests our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on instagram and tiktok tonight BMTV but from all the late team here good night and do take care